9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We have our uh, friend and uh, regular partner on all of this, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you today, Ed? Great, thanks, David. Also joined by another friend in Washington, Norm Ornstein. Norm is Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the smartest guys we ever talked to on politics. How are you doing, Norm? I'm doing better after that introduction. Thank you uh, very well, much, David. Well, that's certainly, uh, it's certainly the truth. And uh, a first-time visitor here, but somebody all of you are familiar with, Heather Cox Richardson is uh, an expert in 19th century history, a well-known historian, a uh, well-known commentator these days, somebody who brings together history uh, and context to all of this. Uh, welcome, Heather. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, so I wanna start with you, Heather. Uh, the, there's a lot of talk about what unprecedented times we live in. Uh, uh, it is the prerogative of historians to dispute that sort of thing, uh, to, you know, and draw parallels from the past. How do you feel about that? Well, I hate to do it to you, but this is definitely unprecedented. I mean, the, the things that people are pointing to that look somewhat similar, of course, is the are the 1850s and 1861, when a certain percentage of the American government decided it was going to go ahead and declare war on that government and build their own new country. But what makes this particular moment different is that uh, the attack on American democracy is coming from the highest levels of the system. So we've got the president and, um, and a number of lawmakers who seem to be eager to, to tear down the results of, a, of, a, of an election. And that's never happened before. And what it means is that there's an awful lot of systemic shifting that's taking place in this moment in a way that really didn't in 1861 when the, the base of power for the Confederacy was regional and the people who were supporting the Confederacy either left on their own or at the end of the day were expelled from the House of Representatives in the Senate. So we're watching a lot of um, uh, many of the same themes, but the, the placement of those themes is brand new. I thought you were going to go into the 1870s and those disputed elections and all that dirty politics. Any echoes there? Oh, there are definitely echoes there, but that's a, that's a, a, a we are dealing with a national issue here. And what was happening in, in the, the wake of the Civil War during Reconstruction was an attempt on the part of uh, uh, white Southern Democrats to reestablish white supremacy in a one-party state in the American South. And of course they succeeded. And the question of how that happens is, or how that happened, there's my 19th century person, it's still very real to me. How that happened is gonna be something we're going to have to look at very closely going forward. And one of the key aspects of how in fact, the Confederacy managed to rise again in the 1870s and take over the American South, at least ideologically, is in large part because there were really never any penalties for having adhered to the Confederacy in the first place. And that's a, that was a terrible, terrible error on the part of the United States government, not making treason odious as it really needs to be. No doubt. Um, 
Norm, I'm obliterated. Uh, I've spent the day sitting watching the impeachment hearings in the House. I've watched every single speech from morning till now. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this, who will be listening a little bit off in the future, we're recording this on Wednesday, just shortly before I think the House is going to vote to uh, impeach President Trump for the second time. Um, I suspect you've been watching it as well. What's your takeaway? Uh, dismay in, in many respects. Uh, you know, as I've watched the Republicans speak, there are uh, two basic kinds of messages that have emerged. One uh, is uh, the call for unity now, um, which uh, I liken to uh, the new definition of chutzpah that replaces the old one, which was somebody who kills his parents and then pleads for mercy because he's an orphan. Now it's we've incited violence, we've discredited the election, but it's the time for unity. But the second is the crazy stuff. And, um, you know, for a long time, I've thought that the Republican Party had become the equivalent of a fundamentalist cult. It preceded Trump. It's been accelerated by Trump, who made it a personality cult as much as anything. And what I see from these speeches, whether they're freshmen or more senior members, including the ones who apparently have packed heat coming into uh, the chamber, of basically avoiding the rules, is uh, what you see from a fanatical cult. So there's that. And of course, it reflects another reality, David, which is that even after the siege on the Capitol, where members really had genuine fears and realistic ones that their lives could be endangered, right after that, almost two thirds of the Republicans in the House still voted to say that uh, Joe Biden's election was illegitimate. Uh, 145 Republicans overall in the House and Senate. And as I watch this, and I'm grateful that Democrats are moving forward with this now because this is such extraordinary and unique behavior by a president that it has to be recognized through this kind of process. But it's hard for me to feel better that after Trump is gone, we're gonna be in a particularly better place. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's certainly the case. And I actually want to raise that with Ed, although I do want to point out that I was also given the definition of chutzpah as burying your husband in a rented suit. That I, I, both, both were used um, in, in my chutzpah training classes when I was growing up. Um, Ed, uh, it's kind of funny, kind of weird 21st century thing because we're friends and we talk a lot. Um, but but a lot of our conversation sort of happens on Twitter. And I was watching you on Twitter a little bit ago. And you made a comment that you too had been watching all of this. And what you saw in it was a kind of foreboding about where we were headed in the Biden era. And I, I thought it'd be good to tease that out a bit. Yeah, uh, well, it's a, a delight to be on with Heather, who I've read um, with great, great enjoyment and always with Norm as well and ditto. And of course you, David. Um, um, the other historic parallel um, made about uh, the 19th century is the War of 1812, where of course my people um, burned Capitol Hill. The last time Capitol Hill was breached and invaded. And uh, the point the point I wish to start off with is that President Madison did not invite the British to assault Capitol Hill. We should just make that clear. This, <laughs> there is a big distinction between what happened in 1814 and what happened on January the 6th. Um, I think it's been a very dispiriting um, 
um, thing, um, watching this impeachment debate in the House and watching Republican after Republican um, do take one or two paths that Norm laid out, um, I, either this complete bullshit, unity and healing, which reminds me not so much of the chutzpah thing as the thoughts and prayers of the NRA every time um, a, an assault weapon is, is used to kill people. The hypocrisy, the sort of stupidity they assume amongst the people listening to them is, um, is breathtaking. But the second one, which is the cult, is uh, I think, you know, the more worrying that we were hoping you know, in the last 24 hours with Liz Cheney's um, very impressive, clear statement as to why she would vote to impeach. And then McConnell looking like he, um, he was favoring um, um, moving to a swift conviction in the Senate. Um, we were hoping that maybe the dam would break and that there would be a sufficient number of previously cowering Republicans now emboldened to actually make a stand. And um, I'm afraid this impeachment debate is is showing very much that um, that's not going to be the case. We'd be lucky to, to get double digits, Republicans more than 10 voting to impeach the president. And I don't think McConnell now is, is planning to hurry the Senate back to hold a trial. So the party remains Trump. And I think what this presages for Biden um, is that cultish party, a party that if on theological grounds, will not in any sense attempt to work with or compromise with a Biden administration. And that's, and that's profoundly worrying. It's, it's, um, it's kind of a death cult. David, you know, let me just follow with uh, a comment or two. One is we now know from multiple sources that a sizable number of Republicans in the House who would have voted for impeachment are not doing it because they're scared literally for the lives of themselves and their families. That's another element of a fundamentalist cult, uh, that it's not just the fear of uh, excommunication or being shunned. It's a physical violence that could follow if you go against that particular cult. Uh, just a second point about McConnell. I thought McConnell's initial statement was much more an attempt to pressure Trump to resign so that they could get out of this cleanly and more quickly and then do what McConnell would like, which is to get distance from Trump and try and make believe that the problem has all been Trump, not any of the rest of them. And I think now that he's stepping back from that and saying, well, I'm not sure how I will vote, that it's a reflection of the fact that that attempt failed. So let's go back to putting this into some kind of historical context, because I think one of the most important things about a big moment like this is to try to determine whether it's the beginning of something or the end of something or where it fits in a continuum of events. Um, I, you know, we, we can talk about whether Trump's got a future or not in the party. Um, my own personal view is he's kind of damaged goods and is going to bleed out for a long time with trials and other kinds of things. And I, you know, I, I'm personally one of the people who's skeptical that he's got long-term viability. I also think, you know, as, as, as both Norm and Ed have indicated, this Republican Party is likely over the course of the next several years to be obstructionist and difficult to deal with for the Democrats. Um, that's fairly predictable. But what I'm worried about is that, that we're seeing something different, that we're at one of those moments, Heather, 
that's more akin to the days before the Civil War um, when this kind of animosity was there. Um, and, and the reason I think that is that as, as in that period, there were, there were two kinds of issues that really drove us to a giant rift that you know, had been developing for 100 years. In this case, some of the issues here have been developing for 250 years. But you know, back then, you had a um, technological change driving the North and changing the way that manufacturing was done and changing how labor was working and changing what the consequences of that would be. And, and, and the North and the South were moving at two different speeds in two different worlds. And you also had structural difficulties in how the U.S. was set up. The U.S. couldn't adapt to that kind of change, couldn't adapt to the, the differences between the two kinds of economies and value systems that went with them. Now we're at a point where um, we're in the midst of demographic change that's going to continue for the next 20 or 30 years to, until the United States is a majority-minority country. And as Norm has often written about, we've got some real structural problems that give the, the, the um, red state, less populated part of America, the more conservative part of America, disproportionate power in the Senate, disproportionate power in the Electoral College. And this is, is going to be a source of deep tension with that demographic change. And you're going to see Democrats, and you're going to see it during the Biden administration, they're going to attempt to make some changes, adding D.C. as a state, adding Puerto Rico, um, changing the way the judiciary works, which is only natural because the Constitution is flawed on these things. But that's going to produce backlash. And so if you have this demographic change and you've got these structural issues and you're going to have them for a long time, wouldn't you suggest, Heather, wouldn't history suggest that we're at the beginning of a long period of turbulence? Um, well, of course, you can read history in many different ways, but I would like to point out, first of all, that what happened in the 1850s was coming to grips, not so much with industrialization, that's going to be in the 1890s, as it was with the westward movement of the United States of America across the continent. So we have had major crises that democracy has had to address since the very beginning. And, you know, you started in the 1850s, so I won't go back beyond that, but we certainly had the 1890s where the country had to come to terms with industrialization. Um, and then we've got uh, the 1920s where it's got to come to terms with the idea of globalization and then the period after World War II when America has to come to terms with what democracy looks like on an international scale. And now of course we have the fact that our democracy does not fit our demographics. And that's a crisis, but it's one that we have two options for solving. Either we go ahead and ignore it and we lose democracy or we fix it. But one of the things that I think is unprecedented about the moment we're in now picks up something that um, that Norm referred to, and that's the calls for unity. And you're calling the calls for unity BS, and I'm calling them um, gendered. And, and also historical, but I think the gendered portion really matters. Of course, the idea of having this unit, unity between North and South after the Civil War deliberately read out of the historical record, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, indigenous people, and women. You know, that was really a unity between white men and tossed overboard the, the majority of Americans. Um, so that's something that's in play right now, but what makes this moment different 
And one of the things that is fascinating as you watch Congress right now, and as you listen to how people are talking about this moment, is that many observers, I'm one of them, but only one of many, have read the language of the present into uh, the, the to abusive relationships. And the call for unity after um, an abuser has beaten the crap out of a victim saying, oh, if, if any, any time you try and impose consequences, you're the one who's going to hurt the children is a kind of language that many Americans today understand. And they hear it and they see it. And they're not, I think, naive about what that means. It's not like the abuser goes quietly into that good night, but they have been saying since 2015, not even 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, this will only get worse until it is stopped. And I think that there is, it's really important to recognize in this moment that there is a lot of people now or there are a lot of people now who have a different set of experiences than the normal people who are, have really since at least the 1980s, but you could argue all the way back to the beginning of American history, held sway in politics, in the media, um, as, as commentators who have a different set of experiences and look at this moment very differently um, than a lot of the people in Congress, for example, right now who are trying to reassert their dominance. I don't think it's gonna fly. And those people uh, who recognize what's happening have a voice today that they have never had before in American history. And I think that that means it's going to be very difficult to say, oh, look, we're looking at what happened in 1878, for example, or, oh, look, this is precisely what happened in the 1890s. I think we have to say we're, we have the same themes, but a different set of players and the players that are now involved know what they're doing. Norm, what is, what's your reaction to the longer term trends? Uh, I'm uh, not happy. Um, you know, the tribalism that we have uh, developed over the last uh, couple of decades, really, um, that has accelerated and Trump has been a major accelerant is not going away. When I look at the comments made by uh, the, what I would call the farm system of the Republican Party now, the party leaders in different states, the state legislatures, and some of the state office holders, I don't see a better generation coming along for a long time to come. And even those Republicans who stood up to do the right thing, uh, like uh, the uh, governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and uh, Raffensperger, the secretary of state, are now going back to put in place more voter suppression uh, methods. And we're going to see that in a bunch of states to try and uh, distort the electoral system even further the calls for racism are great. One of the things we know, David, is that white supremacists and white nationalists have infiltrated a large number of our law enforcement agencies and the military. Some of them were a part of what happened at the Capitol uh, with the, uh, they were joined with the mob and a number of the Capitol police were complicit uh, in this. How we move away from that and how we move away from more violence down the road. You know, those of us here in Washington remain a little nervous about what's gonna happen between now and the 20th and on the 20th. But I will tell you, I've talked to a couple of state legislators in different places, they're scared to death. The 50 states, many of them are gonna have mobs try and take their capitals. 
Uh, we know what happened in Michigan uh, with an attempt to kidnap the governor and probably assassinate her with the people with assault weapons taking over the state capitol there. There are a lot of reasons to be concerned going forward. Uh, now, you know, the other side of that is we've seen a mobilization of civil society in a very good way in response to this threat. We're seeing a lot of actors who uh, were not helpful in the past, giving donations to people they shouldn't have donated to, enabling Trump and his businesses, stepping back from it now. Um, Joe Biden, I believe, is the right person at the any bit in the direction of uh, getting people to think about the consequences of where we're heading. It's uh, Joe Biden. The uh, Georgia elections make a huge difference in terms of the ability to do almost anything. But anybody who's uh, sanguine or optimistic about the coming years, I think, is uh, turning a blind eye to reality. Well, Ed, um, are you turning a blind eye to reality? <laughs> Are you sanguine about this? In particular, you know, we're a week away from a new president, um, a new kind of majority in the Senate. Um, what's, what do you think is likely to come out of this atmosphere over the course of the next few years? Do you think Biden can do the healing he wants to do? Or do you think he's going to get you know, stuffed by McConnell, you know, because you can't do that much with 51 votes in the Senate and, you know, obstructed um, by the Republicans wherever they get a chance. And that the tenor of this and the hostility of this extreme group, you know, there's still a third of Americans who think, you know, Trump handled everything OK in the wake of, of, of last week's events. Um, it's just going to lead to further deterioration over the next four years. Well, well, if you if you'd asked me sometime last year or several different points last year what the optimistic case would be, I would have said that um, it would be Biden winning clearly, which he did. Um, the Senate being regained clearly and and expanded or at least maintained majority in the House. In other words, um, a mandate for some kind of New Deal for the 21st century and a majority to push it through. Um, uh, and, and that's because um, I think that a lot of the problems, if not most, um, that we're seeing sort of come out in these strangled, poisoned, um, violent ways um, with the Trump base um, have their roots in a society that hasn't been governed well. Um, for quite a long time, in which there hasn't been investment in, um, in um, ordinary people's economic futures, in which there's been a sort of level of contempt by the elites of this country on both the right and the left um, for those who are left behind. And, and um, regardless of whether the Trump base wanted, they would have benefited along with everybody else, along with everybody else from a Rooseveltian kind of um, renewal. Um, and I do believe that that would have shrunk the base over time to the hardcore white supremacy side of it. Um, but I think it's less likely now. You mentioned McConnell. McConnell is, you know, to put it in the most polite form, a wily bird. Um, uh, his goal all his life, other than to remain and to become Senate Majority Leader, has been essentially to serve his donors, which is capital, which is big business. 
And I think that will remain his aim. And I don't, I'm afraid to say bye for a second, the recent sort of boycotts announced by Marriott and other companies of the 147 Republicans um, um, who voted to overturn the election last week. Um, I don't think that'll last very long. Um, I think it'll be back to business as usual pretty soon. And I think if that follows, then McConnell will be doing his best to prevent any hint of Rooseveltianism in, in the Biden administration. So if we cannot imagine um, the next administration being able to seriously address the underlying, some of the underlying causes of um, America's problems, then it follows that they'll get worse. Heather, do you, does your read of history leave you an optimist at this moment or do, are you like Norm and Ed more pessimistic? I do think that this is the moment when we either save democracy or lose it to an oligarchy. Um, but I think that Ed makes a very good point that, that one of the things that has completely fueled this moment is the fact that wealth has moved upwards so dramatically since 1981. And even simply returning the ability for people at the bottom, ordinary Americans, to feel like they can actually move forward at all in this country would go a long way to defanging a lot of this. But I'm, I'm gonna go ahead back here and play um, play the, the white male card again. Um, I am absolutely not rosy about the future. Um, I do think American democracy is going to, to obtain in the end, but um, this is not new. You know, what we are looking at here is not new for the majority of Americans, and they do understand um, how to slog through things, that, that, that regaining control out of a situation that is out of control does not happen overnight. And, um, and I, I don't think that the majority of Americans who are now uh, stepping up are going to, to give up and say, oh, well, Biden's in office, everything's rosy now. That moment when Officer Goodman was at the top of those stairs, I found, and stopping the crowd from coming into the Senate, I found enormously powerful, not simply because of what he did, but because he clearly knew what one does when one is cornered. You know, he, he looked for his options, he saw them and he took the least bad one. And that was something that I think had to have come from somebody who had been previously been part of a, a marginalized community because he knew what to do next. And now that power is shifting demographically in, in the country, I really think that matters. Having a bunch of people who understand how to take your least bad option is a very different kind of political movement than one that says, we're gonna get it all the minute that we get into office, which perhaps was what people were fantasizing about before we got into this cul-de-sac. Well, look, I'm going to try here on behalf of the sanity of our listeners, which, and I'm not sure how much of that is remaining after all these years, but I want to try here to extract a little optimism from these scenarios. I'll start with you, Norm. I realize the, the prospects are low, but, but you know, as, as, as we look at this, you know, it's hard to remember that moments before this insanity happened last Wednesday, we were celebrating two Democrats winning in Georgia, that a nine-year effort to get out the vote there, fight voter suppression, uh, led by Stacey Abrams and others, was actually successful. And that this reflected an ability to make an adjustment on, on one of the sort of 
seeming unchanging structural realities of, of, of modern American politics, which is, you know, the solid red South. Um, at the same time, now, because of that, there may be some opportunities to undertake some of these structural changes that might, you know, remedy some of the things that you've flagged. Do you think that can happen? Do you think, do you think the Democrats can figure out how to address some of these issues, including dealing with things like uh, inequality and empowerment that Heather was talking about? Uh, do you have any glimmer of hope? So a couple of glimmers of hope. One, um, although it cuts against some of what you've just been asking, uh, that Heather pointed out, I actually do think that if Ed's scenario had worked out, which I had also hoped for, a more robust Democratic majority in the House, a comfortable Senate majority for Democrats, maybe 53, 54, and a comfortable Biden victory, that we would have had a real dilemma on our hands. Uh, the uh, left of the Democratic Party would have believed that now was their time for radical change. And not only would the votes not have been there uh, because it's a variegated and diversified party, uh, but also the Senate filibuster would have stymied them and they would have had difficulty changing it for at least a period of time. Having these razor thin margins, I think brings a, a slightly greater degree of discipline and an understanding that Biden can't wave a magic wand and make lots of things uh, happen. Some things can happen, uh, particularly through the uh, mechanism of reconciliation where they can get an up or down vote, but how much um, depends on uh, how skillful uh, not just Biden uh, is and his team, and there are some really good people on that team, including uh, the chief of staff, Ron Klain, but also on uh, Chuck Schumer, because you're going to have to get a combination of things together that will do as much as you possibly can, but also get Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders uh, on board. But I think there's more possibility there. The structural change, there's a new revised HR1 that's just out today that has some really powerful political reforms to help push us a little bit away from the distortions in the system that otherwise are going to get worse is gonna get nowhere until you have uh, a filibuster change or uh, at least some prospect of getting a couple of Republican votes. And there um, we're gonna have some difficulty. There's one other thing that I would mention. The key now, I think for the next five years is what happens in the midterm elections in 2022. If Republicans pursue the same game plan they did in 2009, 10 and 2013, 14, unite like a parliamentary minority party, vote against everything in unison, uh, every major initiative, discredit what you can, delegitimize what you can't, and, uh, uh, and delegitimize the president. If that results in the same kind of elections that we had in those midterms, Republicans regaining the House and uh, the Senate, they're back to the same bad patterns. If we see them lose, seats, lose ground significantly, and that could happen, then I think you begin to get at least some traction for reasonable, very conservative, problem-solving Republicans, and maybe even some willingness to look at the structural changes we need to make our system fairer and better. Well, that is, that is, that is a little bit hopeful. You know, Ed, one of a the- little. Well, Yeah, a little. One of the things that the Republicans have been saying, and I 
I, I you know, so, occasionally I'd have to rub my eyes. I, I was watching um, a Republican um, minority leader, Kevin McCarthy's speech in which he was trying to be as statesmanlike as, as I've ever seen him try to be. And he actually laid some responsibility uh, at Trump's feet. The message they had was, well, you know, this stuff that happened last week was bad. People need to be held to account and it takes a long time. We need to have a real investigation into all of this. And it looks like McConnell's gonna punt the, um, the investigation into post Biden era. Uh, and there is some fear among Biden team that, you know, this is going to distract from their agenda. How intensely should the, the Democrats on the Hill in, pursue investigation into what just happened? Because it seems that perhaps some congressmen abetted it. It seems that this, you know, this seditious effort goes back a couple of months. It seems that the White House may have had some involvement or not. That would all be worth knowing, but that in and of itself could be an obstacle to other progress. How, do, how does America you know, balance those two needs? And there's two, there's two ways it could be an obstacle to, to, to progress. One is um, you know, by provoking the Republicans, I would dismiss that. Uh, they will find any pretext to be provoked. Um, so I would dismiss that. The other is the use of time, Senate time um, for conviction trial um, um, and House time for, for, for pushing forward things like HR1. Um, I, I think that it is very, very important to get to the bottom of what happened on January the 6th, what led up to it, um, where the security um, service failings were, the FBI, why the warning wasn't good enough, whether there was conspiracy, whether there were people in on the inside, whether there were reconnaissance tours of the Capitol building to some of the subsequent protesters. All of this is national security um, knowledge that America needs. Um, if we are indeed talking about organized domestic terrorism, which could come back worse once their savior is out of office, um, then we need to know about it. The, the FBI and others and the intelligence agencies have been warning for years that the principal domestic ter terrorist threat to the United States, the principal terrorist threat to the United States, the domestic right-wing groups. That is now true in spades. So it's acutely important. Um, as regards, you know, whether it's worth using up Senate time for a trial of President Trump, you know, I don't really know. Um, I, I think the Department of Justice needs to pursue um, criminal and civil investigations of uh, many aspects of the Trump administration, and it should do so with urgency, thoroughness, um, and, and some aggression. This is a, a hugely important to uh, the future of liberal democracy in this country, that it protects itself robustly, um, and it has to act on what, on what we've seen. And so I think the, the DOJ's the DOJ's role is really important here. Um, I think more important than the impeachment process. I, I am skeptical that McConnell is actually um, been anywhere near any roads leading to Damascus. Yeah, well, if he is, we're at the very end of that road to Damascus anyway, yeah. right? There's inches to go on that road. Um, um, Heather, just to 
you know, put a button on it all because we've talked about it and sort of the near term and the medium term and the longer term implication. Uh, people listening to this will have just seen that the president of the United States was impeached for a second time and that that's never happened before in American history. And, you know, we, you know, we, we know that the first line of Donald Trump's obituary is going to read Donald Trump, the only president in American history to be impeached twice. Um, beyond that, if you were, you know, you, you are talking to them, what, what, how do you, is, was, is this a, you know, an, a net positive? How do you put it in the context? How does the average person take in this impeachment? Um, or is it so quickly gonna go back to business as, as usual that it's just gonna be seen as, you know, last week's drama? Well, I have to laugh because I don't think you know what the first line of his obituary is going to be because it could be Donald Trump, the man who got rid of American democracy and became king, uh, died today. Or it could be Donald Trump, the first American president to spend the rest of his life in prison, died today. And I think one of the things that really matters is remembering that we don't know what's going to happen in the, the rest of, uh, of President-elect Biden's term because what happens right now is going to determine what happens that. So if in fact, the Department of Justice, and I do not believe they're going to do this, walks away from actually prosecuting uh, the people who were responsible for what happened last Wednesday, then it's gonna be a really different story than if they do go ahead and get to the bottom of it. And here, I think the past is enormously instructive. And that is, if you think about reconstruction in the late 19th century, right up to the present, if in fact the Department of Justice, which of course President Grant created in, uh, signed the, the legislation to create in 1870, had gone ahead and made treason odious back in the 19th century, we would not be where we are right now. But it was not a bad thing to have been a Confederate supporter or to argue in favor of Confederate principles in the United States Congress as late as 1879, when they really did try to destroy the country from within and they got shot down and went ahead and the parties both reconstructed themselves after that 1879 coup attempt then. So um, I think we, we don't really know what things are going to look like going forward for people trying to wrap their heads around it, I think the answer is to remember that this is a democracy and your voice matters. So speak up. Now is not the time to sit and ask what's going to happen. Now is the time to create what's going to happen. And we might have a very different future if, we, if all of us do that. Uh, great summation. We have about 30 seconds. So I'm going to ask this question. Norm and then Ed. And if you want to add one too, you can, Heather. What is the first line of Donald Trump's obituary going to read, Norm? I'm hoping it will be that he spent the rest of his life in prison, but I suspect it's going to be what you said, that he's the first president to have been impeached twice and the only president. Ed? I, I would share, I would totally share uh, Norm, Norm's hope. Um, and, and here's the line I hope it won't be. Donald Trump, father of President Ivanka Trump, died today. <laughs> no, no question. You want to add another potential first line there? Heather? Oh, I can't top that one. Let's leave it right there. <laughs> Now okay. nightmares for weeks. Yeah, <laughs> you've really, you've really done a number on us now, Ed. Um, all right. Well, thanks everybody. It's been quite a week. Uh, we're really, really lucky to have had Heather and Norman Ed here to try and put it into some context. We're gonna continue with trying to do a few special podcasts. Yesterday, forty-three hundred people um, 
died of COVID in the United States. And, and, and it looks like by February, we're going to be at 5,000 people a day. Um, it's, a, it's an extraordinary time, deeply, deeply disturbing. Clearly, the first thing on the Biden administration's mind is going to be dealing with that. We're going to have a special uh, episode dealing with that, also going to come up a little bit later today. And then uh, we'll be dealing with some of the legal issues involved with this in our usual Thursday podcast. So please go to the DSRnetwork.com, find out about those, find out about other things we're doing, go to the place where you can become a member, become a member, help us to do this. Um, thanks to Heather. Thanks to Norm. Thanks to Ed. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, stay healthy, everybody.